0: Traffic, uniform, party
1: 11, Welcome to Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. My name is Chuck. I'll be your host coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and flying with the Cumberland Soaring Group. This is episode 50. This episode is brought to you by Arizona Soaring Incorporated, the nation's largest provider of professional glider training since 1969. They provided training from Initial Private through CFI Glider and Entry Level through Advanced Aerobatics. Open year-round, seven days a week. More information is available at azsoaring.com. On this episode of the podcast, we talked to Keith Schwab, a glider pilot with a PhD in physics who didn't always love flying. In fact, while on a commercial flight crossing the Atlantic in some very extreme turbulence, He found himself stuck in the bathroom gripping the handles that caused him to develop a serious fear of flying. Then something happened in 2014 while hiking one of the mountain peaks near Los Angeles that would change that fear and his path to aviation. Later on this episode, we will also discuss the opportunities for the soaring community to grow and possibly find a way to fund those that dream to soar. Also, some important news on the upcoming SSA Soaring Convention and some of the exciting things that will be happening in Little Rock next month. All this and more now on this episode of Soaring the Sky. Keith Schwab, welcome to the podcast. It is great to have you today. How are you?
0: I'm doing great, Chuck. Thanks so much for uh, inviting me. Absolutely. Great. So where are you flying out of? Right. So I live in Pasadena. I'm a professor of applied physics at Caltech, so I'm hanging around Southern California. Um, I fly mostly out of two locations. I fly out of Crystal at the Southern California Soaring Academy, which is where I did all my studies there to learn how to soar. And uh, for cross-country flying... I keep a glider at Inyokern and fly with the Sierra Soaring Club there. Um, and Inyokern is at the south end of the Sierras. And it's just a fantastic place to launch flying in the Owens Valley on the Sierras, on the Whites, on the Inyos. Just epic flying in the Owens Valley. So when the conditions are really you know, ripping... The emails start circulating, and everybody assembles and launches from Inukern. It's really, really fun. So those are my two uh, two go-to spots. But I've flown at some other other places as well, like Warner Springs and Tehachapi, but uh, mostly at Crystal and Inukern.
1: That sounds amazing. The West, um, I haven't experienced soaring in the West yet. I've been out there, but yeah, I'd, I hope to do that. Well, can you tell me how this journey started with aviation for you
0: (laughs) yeah so i am not a natural flyer and um like i mentioned uh, just briefly in the when we were preparing for this a little bit i was scared of flying i i used to travel a boatload for work going to conferences and giving talks and all that kind of stuff scientific talks around the world and um i eventually had uh you know i used to fly a ton so it was a lot a lot of miles and eventually i had a horrible experience i was flying over the atlantic in a big jet through the night, and I was in the bathroom, and uh, uh, we hit we hit sustained intense turbulence over the Atlantic in the winter, and I couldn't get out of the bathroom. I had to hold on to the handles, and I was convinced that I was going to die in the this back of the plane breaking off into the into the cold ocean. So oh, I wow. started to get I started to get pretty scared of flying, and I really hated it. I hated the bumps and the turbulence. So that was where my mind was. I was uh, hiking with one of my students in the local mountains here in in uh, Southern California, um, up Mount Baldy. It's a peak about ten thousand feet. And while we are at the top, this is uh, October 2014, so I'm, I'm relatively new to all this. Uh, while I was at the top there, a glider came and swooped over us and came back a couple times, and I just couldn't believe it. I just thought it was just fantastic. So I got back home and I googled. I found I found the airport. It must have been Crystal. Uh, I called them, I sent an email, and uh, I said, hey, I'd like to get a glider experience. Uh, I was 45 at the time, and I thought if I don't do this, I probably will never do this, at least to get the experience to try it once. So they responded back and said, hey, we have a slot in uh, the next weekend. And my fear of flying was enough that I was disappointed that they had a slot so early I wanted to kind of mentally uh, brace for this whole thing. Uh, But anyway, I just went, I just did it. Um, you get old enough at some point, you just don't care about your fears, I guess. You just kind of bear it. So I, I get in the glider, uh, I get to crystal, I get the, get in the glider and they one of their, uh, you know, commercial pilots, uh, Steve De la Cruz took me up and it turned out to be a, a, a beautiful wave day, a blue wave day. I didn't know what that was. And we just released, you know, near the San Gabriel's and we floated up to 14,000 feet. And, you know, I'm a physicist and like, you know, gravity has a pretty strong force down on a thousand pounds of fiberglass and people. And I couldn't understand how this thing is going up. So it's really crazy. We had this beautiful view out into the ocean from the from the desert. You know, we flew around. He asked if I wanted to touch the controls. I did not want to touch anything. I thought this thing was intrinsically unstable. I didn't know how things flew and uh, I didn't want to touch anything. And we got down to the ground. And then I went and spoke to the guys hanging out in the office and it was, you know, Dale Masters, Ron Gregg and uh, Chris Bennett, the uh, owner and operator of uh, Wood Julie of the S- Southern California Soaring Academy. And I started talking to them and I started to realize that these are very smart people and they know a lot. They, some of them, a couple of them uh, were professional pilots, airline pilots uh, who were teaching there. And I started to get the idea that the soaring community is actually extremely competent, that these are very, very smart people who love flying. And so I decided to start lessons after having a chat with them. And, you know, I was, my gut feeling was right on that these people are smart. They like adventure. They, they, they enjoy teaching a, an amazing skill. Uh, soaring has this sweet spot of, uh, of adventure and knowledge uh, risk management, oh, you know, like rock climbing, you have to manage your risks. You know, it's just this great sweet spot of all those kind of uh, attributes. So yeah, that's how I got started, and I started going every uh, twice a week. Um, my schedule is uh, during that quarter was pretty flexible. You know, what is it like eight months later or so? I w- I did my first solo. You know, I, I was, yeah, exactly. I just was you know, and then a year after that, I uh, I, I I was prepared by uh, Stewart. Uh, Ayat and uh, Dale Masters. And I, a year after I soloed, I, I took my private pilot. With, it was just with Dan Grudgel. It was super great, learned a lot. And then a year after that, I bought my first ship. And so I, st- I have this DG 303. I keep it at, at Inukern, And my education into cross country f- flying was when I met up with the group that had a, a camp out of Bishop. Uh, The Pacific Soaring Council, they brought a tow plane to Bishop and I met up with them and I started to learn how to fly on the Whites and the Inyos and then over to the Sierras. And I think in one flight, I was able to get all of my silver, all of my gold. It was incredible. It was just an all day flight. It was just like, okay, once I got the idea of how to do cross country and I had the Owens Valley and all the landing sites in the Owens Valley within reach, Um, I felt like I could just go and um, I'm pretty conservative. I, you know, don't consider myself reckless, uh, but I could so I could keep these airports in reach, these landing sites and just cover some distance. And I saw how to do that. And that was just incredibly valuable experience. So thanks to the guys at Pacific Soaring for Council for uh, uh, including me. That made a huge impact on my uh, cross-country soaring experience. Yeah, it sounds like you learned a lot fairly fast. Yeah, and I also was, I never felt like I was in a rush, like, um, you know, I wasn't in a rush with the private pilot exam. I, once I understood that this was something very interesting to learn how to do, and it has this beautiful adventure and interaction with nature and the mountains, I realized that it was going to do this for probably for a long time. So then if that's the case, there's no rush to any particular goal. It's more about how to really understand how to do this, how to really do this and to just enjoy doing it. So yeah, I just kind of just kept always learning and reading and just pushing forward, talking to people, trying to learn from them. So yeah, that it seems like it was fast, but I always felt like I was just kind of proceeding along methodically. And it's one of my skills, like as a kid, I always just loved just learning new things. And I was never afraid of being really terrible at them at first, so I, I don't care about starting something new and it's fun to build up those skills. so it's it's just been a great, great thing to learn how to do. Well, it sounds
1: like you've had some pretty amazing flights, and we were talking earlier. And last week, you actually had a flight that you were able to reach an altitude, I believe you said over twenty four thousand feet.
0: yeah <laughs> yeah. so yeah, i post I posted that on a couple of the Facebook pages, like I love the Sierras and uh, Glide forever. Uh, just to show people what we're what we're doing out of Kern. And to uh, kind of promote promote gliding, um, you know, trying to look for pilots and all that. But I can tell you about the flight. So what happened was uh, the actual flight was on the 12th of, of January this month. It was out of Inukern. And the week before, you know, we we're all looking on SkySight. And there was an email from a younger pilot, uh, Zach Yamichi, And he did the call that says, hey, looks like there's WAVE. In uh, Owens Valley, the Sierras, and also uh, south um, near Mojave, and and in the in the desert of Edwards Air Force Base, he's like, hey, looks like the Sierras are going to do this wave. We should. Anyone else want to fly? I chimed in and was like, yeah, I'm down. Let's do this. And in the end, there was four of us who flew. It was Zach, uh, myself, uh, Britton Blue Dorn, and Tom Serkowski. And so we had a tow pilot lined up and the night before everyone, everyone came to assemble the night before. And then at 5 PM that night, the tow pilot emails saying, got a fever. Can't tow tomorrow. Everyone's like, Oh no shoot this is gonna suck it's gonna be a beautiful wave day and then all the planes are ready to go and the ships are ready to go and no 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 pilot so ended up uh mike malice towed and mike is uh is uh you know was super generous getting out there to tow and is someone who's involved in the perlin project and you know a a big part of the community in southern california for soaring uh he tows at crystal as well so anyway mike stepped up and it's just like amazing he uh, we launched uh, first launch, I think, was around a uh, little before 9 a.m. with Zach and um, I was second just as the tow plane uh, was I was hooking up to the tow plane. He gets on the radio. Mike gets on the radio and says, oh, by the way, the turbulence is substantial, you know, on a scale of eight to ten or, or out of ten, expect eight. And I, so this is right as you're getting hooked up. Right. So you're just like, yeah, hey, right. it's not a good idea. Right. um so anyway we get he on the ground the winds were very light so getting off the ground was fine we hit some turbulence it actually for my toe was not horrible i spoke to him later and he said um the next couple toes were also not horrible but the return his return back to the airport was terrible you know substantial turbulence it was not pleasant he said so anyway big thanks to mike for making all this possible so anyway, I got I towed out at 915 and uh, released a I, – I took a look at the OLC trace. I, I released, I think, at around 6,000 feet, and 45 minutes later, I was at 21,500 feet. And this is right right over the airport at Inyokern. And I was just kind of oh, humping around. I was just trying to fill up my tank because uh, my goal was to head north to the edge of the 2508 complex. That we fly in. So a bunch of us uh, in in this area, Southern California, around Edwards, uh, there's a military flying uh, uh, MOA that we can fly in. You can get a letter of agreement with with Edwards to fly into Class A airspace, and um, it's this Sage Two clearance. A bunch of us have it, and so the day before you request, you they put you on the schedule when you're ready to break 18,000 feet. You call them on the radio, they tell you what to ping your transponder, they ask you where you expect to fly, and then they keep track of you while you're flying in their airspace. So you would think that the, your military airspace would be somehow you know, a burden or more restrictive, but it actually turns out to be really great because they steer all the commercial traffic away from there. So it's it's really super that we can fly in that space.
1: Now, that's very cool they do that for you.
0: Yeah, it's, it's great. And the guys at Joshua, uh, who we speak to on, on the radio, are just unbelievably helpful. So anyway, the, it turned out it was kind of an unusual wave day. The, the winds are were, um, there's a westward component to the, you know, from the west over the Sierras making the wave, but there also was a huge north component. Eventually, in the Owens Valley, that up at like 23,000 feet, uh, the north component, uh, you know, the winds were blowing at like 70 knots, so it was it was pretty pretty fast, and it was had a big north component. So actually, making progress in the wave to do like a big distance day is was pretty difficult. So I ended up plotting up north, and you know, just the the saga of uh, of flying. My wife always teases me. It's like, yeah, what was the soaring like? It's like well, I flew to a cloud, and I went up, and then I flew away, and I went down, and then I go to the next cloud, and I go up. You know, it's just the same story. <laughs> but this, uh, so this particularly, the wave flights are around here, um, the wave works pretty well from Kern up to Olancha Peak, which is, you know, maybe like 40 miles north of, of Inukern And then the Sierras make kind of a, a jog to the west as you go past uh, what's called the switchbacks, which is, you know where uh, Waltz Point is and stuff. It's just south of Whitney by 10 miles. Anyway, the Sierra, so the terrain, the ridgeline makes a, a, a deviation. And I've flown in the wave before, and I've always messed it up right around Ollanta, Walt, Waltz, Waltz Point, this this area. And so I, I was up high, and I told myself I'm not gonna not gonna bugger this up. Uh, of course, I bugger it up. I ended up making the wrong choice. I hit some sink. And I was exploring to the west, and it seemed like more sinky, so I headed downwind, which was a mistake, and I ended up in huge sink near Walls Point. And I went all the way from, I don't know, 20,000 feet or something like that, down to 8,000 feet, and the Owens Valley uh, around there is probably 4,000 feet. So I basically lost it all. Oh, And yeah. I was sad. I thought, okay, I am going to just lose this, and I'm going to be landing out in Lone Pine, while my friends are flying way high and far, and I'm the sad, the sad pilot uh, at Lone Pine, hoping someone will bring my trailer up to get me. So I also realized while I was flying, is like flying is always better than sitting on the ground wishing you're flying. So you just, I just kept trying to find some lift. I headed towards the foot of Whitney. Uh, there's a road that heads up to the the trail to Mount Whitney, and I was right above the road, and I was really getting little puffs of lift, getting, you know. Little bit of gain, a lot of loss. Little bit of gain, a lot of loss. Eventually, I get down to 8,000 feet. I I eventually, I'm ready to throw in the towel. I turn, I turn the plane to head to Lone Pine, and I hit a big burst. I was able to orbit in it, and I'm up again and just flying. So I get up to 10,000 feet. You know, there was yeah. So I'm I'm back flying. It's like somehow somehow magically I I found something. I just never gave up. So then. The turbulence, the rotor that I had to fly through was uh, this is just downwind of Whitney is just extraordinary, and I've done this once or twice before, so I was ready for it. But the buffeting from the tur- the rotor is extreme, and you know it's a competition between trying to fly slow enough that you're not going to destroy the plane with the forces involved with the the big turbulence fast enough that you have enough control that you're not getting flipped over the fact that i started aviation being scared of the turbulence over a flight over the atlantic and now flying in the rotor at whitney that's a big difference right yeah <laughs> yeah you. right
1: so How you just hold on
0: you just you know the the winds weren't the winds were not predicted to be extreme and i've heard you know lectures from other wave pilots where the winds can be so extreme that, you know, it can rip apart gliders and stuff. So the wind, the prediction was the winds were not going to be that extreme today. So, you know, I just was like, okay, you just hold on, keep control of the plane, fly to moderate speed. I got on top of all this. And then the lift just was outrageous. 30 knots going up, sustaining. It Uh was unbelievable. And, at some point i'm like i'm gonna bust the 25,000 feet that i asked uh, joshua for so i fly downwind to get out of the wave uh to get into some weaker lift but that's the that's the area where the very extreme altitudes in the past have been achieved and you can see why there's something about the terrain there that the wave is extraordinarily strong 30 knots going up it was incredible it was incredible right and one of the videos i posted on uh on YouTube um, shows a more mild place where the uh, the wave is going up at 17 knots, continuously up, smooth as glass, just floating up. It's incredible. So anyway, so long long story short, I proceed north to Independence. It's a big headwind, so I can't make much progress. And at some point, uh, I realize, okay, I'm just gonna um, I want to I want to go south and eventually go past the Sierras and maybe um, into the desert and around Mojave and Tehachapi and around those places. So I just head south. So now I've got a tailwind and 70 knots at altitude. And I think the ground speed that I I saw was uh, close to 200 miles an hour on the ground. Uh, I was flying at 100 knots. Um, Yeah, it was incredible. So yeah, that's kind of the, that's the basic story of the day, the most extreme events. I did, (laughs) while I was floating along at 20,000 feet, Uh, At the south end of the Owens Valley, I was pointing north. I hear these jet engines, and you know, you get used to hearing just the hiss of the glider, and you don't want you don't hear anything else, right? Maybe a little chatter on the radio. I hear these jet engines, and I'm like, wait a minute, I should pay attention to that. And I look above my head, and it's a B-1 bomber. It would look like a thousand feet over my head, chasing an air tanker. And it was magnificent, really beautiful. And I watch these guys then do a, a turn to the west over the Sierras, and the, the B-1 connects to the tanker. So there's a lot of interesting things flying around wow. in the area. Yeah. So that's kind of the story. That's the I, I didn't go as high as uh, I think I could have. There was, certainly was lift going higher. I've achieved in the past 27,000 feet. My first wave flight was really funny and that. It was a very weak wave day and I was uh, chomping at the bit to do my diamond climb and my, to see if I could also get a, my first Lenny. So I, it, was very, it was pretty weak and I just kept at it for a couple hours and I eventually got up to 25,000 feet. And I remember thinking, this was like two years ago, do not mess this up. Do not mess this up for being short 100 or 200 feet. And in the end, I was watching my GPS rather than my barometric altitude I get back down to the ground. Um, the other guys didn't weren't weren't willing to just sit in very weak lift to get up high, so they were surprised that I got up as high as I did. I, we were having dinner and Tom Serkowski takes my um, my flight trace, puts it on his computer, and says, Oh, by the way, you missed it by two hundred feet. I could Oh no. It. <laughs> so I'm sitting in the airplane thinking, Don't mess this up and what did I do? I messed this up. Yeah. So that's what a PhD in physics will do for you. It's like supposed to be smart guy. Not smart guy. Yeah, uh, <laughs> um, so that's my story of that flight. It was really super fun. It took me a couple of days to really process it all. I, I just thought it was just so much just so much fun. Just terrific. If it was if it, the wave was going this weekend, I'd be out there again. Oh yeah,
1: absolutely. We briefly were talking about glider accidents and maybe some suggestions how we could learn more from them.
0: Yeah. You, yeah. No, thanks for bringing that up. The, um, you know, the thing I noticed as I'm a newbie, right. And I, I think I'll probably always consider myself a newbie in this in this area. Uh, there's been people flying their whole life. They have significant aviation careers. You know, I, I, I really enjoy it, but I, I'm always learning from these guys. So I don't know a lot. So I, I would read um, the FAA reports of glider accidents. And then I would go talk to some of the more senior people around me who are more, much more experienced and they would say things like, oh, yeah, the FAA guys don't understand at all why this glider crashed and their report is largely useless. And did you realize this? And did you realize that? I was like, no, I had no clue. And and so it's like the the, the more experienced people know clearly that the reports are not particularly useful. So. One of the things that I've seen is that in the mountaineering community, they publish a book every year that summarizes the accidents of the year. And some of those accident reports are very detailed. And, you know, you you read them. I'm not a mountaineer, but I, I was at a cafe where they had this book. It was up in, up in Bishop at the Black Sheep Cafe, and it was laying there, and I was reading it. And... Some of the action reports are really detailed, and you can get really good information about how people get hurt, what the mistakes were, what was avoidable, what was unavoidable, what's the chain of bad decisions that were made, what good decisions were made, the whole thing. So what occurred to me was that what I would love to see – and this is just kind of a shout-out to the soaring community in the States here, and I think it would be you know, fine internationally or whatever, but let's say here in the U.S. – I would love to see a group of senior soaring pilots – five or six. Look at the crashes or the accidents that have happened in the last year or two. Pick one or two accidents. It doesn't have to be every single one, you know, because it gets exhaustive, but pick one or two where you actually can understand what's happened and do a detailed write-up of what happened. What are the lessons to be learned? What can be taught? What was avoidable, what was unavoidable, right? So a deep dive into one or two and so you can imagine if this was done long term, you have a pile of teaching material. Here's what happened here. Here's the bad decision was made. This person overflew a landable site and proceeded on to a non-landable place. Right. Things like that. Yeah, so, I think
1: that'd be a great idea.
0: I would love it. I I would. Um, I'm not I'm not experienced enough to be part of a, a panel to make, you know, but helping organize such a thing, I would love to be a part of organizing it. But there is, um, I think the community would greatly benefit. And so I've heard some talk that maybe the Soaring Society doesn't want to advertise the accidents because it doesn't want to scare away pilots. I don't know. I don't believe that to be true. The, the mountaineering community, you know, the mountains are calling. They call people. They, they come. The, the sky calls people. Uh, we will have people who want to do this if we give them opportunities to do it. So I, I think um, really looking into the accidents and writing some reports uh, would be beautiful. I would love to see that.
1: I agree, and you know, one of the questions I always ask on the podcast is, "How do you feel we can be better and safer pilots?" And that I think is a, a great idea to be a. You know, if we had the information in front of us on things that happen, even if it saves one life, it's well worth it.
0: Yeah, totally. And it's 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 fascinating. And there's the human foibles and the psychology that is really deeply interesting. And how do you overcome that? All that kind of stuff is really, really interesting, and it will lead to lots of good discussions and thinking. So, yeah, I don't I don't see any any downside. Really, really interesting.
1: How do you feel about the future of soaring and maybe what we could do to help out the sport?
0: Yeah. So, you know, the the age of the community is is obvious. You know, I'm 51. I often feel like kind of sometimes the youngster in uh, in the in the groups where I go. You know there's a couple of younger pilots that uh are around like we have uh, michael marshall here at caltech who flew in the junior uh, world championships in hungary um there's zach who's flying with us out at in so there's a few younger pilots but it's pretty obvious that we need to figure out how to find new pilots i think uh, youtube is an underutilized resource for soaring bruno's uh, vessels uh videos are incredibly good but I think even more produced videos, uh, shorter that are more produced would be really fantastic. There was, uh, Matt Wright, Beleka. his videos with his soundtracks are unbelievably awesome on YouTube. So stuff like that. And there's, there's, they say that, you know, like YouTube has a huge, uh, viewership from, uh, young men and, you know, there's, you know, I'd love to see women fly. You know, young women and women flying and soaring, of course, but also there's, uh, I think, a there's a huge amount of young men looking at YouTube, and it's this getting getting, uh, the videos out on YouTube would be really important. So producing material, and getting it on YouTube and things like that, Instagram, all that. Uh, as much as I hate social media, I think you know they're very destructive in a lot of ways to our society. You know, you can talk on and on and on about that, but. It is a way that people see what's happening in the world, and the images that come from soaring are inspiring. It's a beautiful sport, so we should take advantage of that. So yeah, there's that, amazing pictures, you know,
1: on Instagram and on Facebook from pilots that are just out there soaring. And yeah, yeah Bruno is an example of the amount of interest there is in, in these videos. These guys, you know, probably don't know anything about soaring, and then they see one of his videos and uh, we talked when he was on the podcast, he has millions of views. So that right there tells you there are a lot of people out there that are interested.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think uh, as well, um, I just wanted to mention what's happening at the at the Southern California Soaring Academy at Crystal. And I know you're going to talk to uh, to Julie Bennett uh, in the future. But just as an example, the Soaring Academy has a, a nonprofit status where they are offering educational experiences to high school teachers and students and talking to julie she just told me i was out there flying i was out there crystal on monday flying with my son very six-year-old son she said that they have flown 600 eighth graders in this program and they also have. yeah it's incredible and they also have a program where they're taking up veterans from the va hospital and they have flown 1700 vets and this is what their nonprofit part of the Soaring Academy is doing. And I think the, you know, when I look at the future of Soaring, and I, I don't want to dwell on the, the finances and all this stuff too much, but the thing that's neat about Soaring is that you can do it very cheaply, and you can, you know, you can buy a ship with a few friends, and you can do it pretty cheaply and have a lot of fun all day, and it is great. But it also is true that Soaring attracts some people with some significant net worth, and You know, when you look at educational institutions like, let's say, I'm at Caltech. So there's other places like Harvard and Princeton and Stanford. At Caltech, we have $3 billion in the bank in endowment and invested, and we draw out 4% a year, generates something like 150 million a year forever. So if we could endow soaring institutes uh, in a similar way, you know, every million dollar of an endowment would generate what is it, uh, you know, $40,000 a year perpetually, right? So That
1: would be huge. I mean, can you yeah. imagine what you could do with that?
0: I know, exactly. And the point is, is that the folks out there who are soaring with high net worth, let's think about how to endow soaring, right? It is an amazing activity. It leads to careers. It leads to amazing experiences. Let's think about how to make that happen. That's what I think should be happening. Maybe the Soaring Society of America could be part of that for sure, but I think if I had that kind of net worth, I would be looking at my local soaring operation and have them set up a structure that could accept money from some endowment indefinitely and support scholarship for kids. So that's what I would be thinking about long term.
1: I mean, yeah, it would give so much more opportunity and get the word out more too, you know, and we have all these young kids that are interested in soaring. It could be a reality, you know?
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I wish I would have started when I was younger. It would have probably changed my life in significant ways. I, I love the the time and energy I put into physics and all those years, but uh, flying and you know encountering nature in this way is a truly uh, amazing experience.
1: It is absolutely. Have you done any research yourself on maybe how to raise funds, generate some financial support for soaring? Yes.
0: Yeah, so. Um, you know, so i think I think about myself like when I retire, maybe what I want to do with soaring and what I might do with my plane, and you know that might be a good good thing, but that's you know that's pretty far out in the future more more recently, just uh, last summer, you know we had a we had a student here at Caltech uh, Michael Marshall uh, participate in the junior worlds and in Hungary on his behalf, I approached our senior administrators here at Caltech. And, you know, thought it was just amazing that we have this Ph.D. student who is involved at this kind of level of competition. And I was able to, you know, secure from Caltech uh, $10,000 of support to send Michael to to the world, uh, cover, you know, cover all his costs and just, you know, make it make it possible and financially just not an obstacle. And so, you know, just thinking for the rest of the community out there you know, for those of us who might not have high net worth at this point in our lives, but are at senior positions within uh, institutions, companies, uh, maybe there's ways to, uh, you know, to steer some some funds uh, to, to younger people around us in this way through some charitable donation, through some fundraising. In our case here at Caltech, uh, the trade was is that uh, we generated a story for our you know promotional materials for our institute to show what our students are doing and uh that was uh, essentially worth it to the senior people to provide some real funds so anyway there's there's creative ways we all have uh resources around us and uh, if we can make arguments for why it's a uh, an important uh thing to fund um uh, maybe that's a way too so anyway just thought i would uh mention that as well
1: And you you never know till you ask. I mean, obviously you ask and look, look what happened.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it was uh, literally an email and a answer saying, yes, (laughs) how is that? Okay. (laughs) You just have to ask.
1: Yeah, exactly. I know you're a fan of soaring camps. And for example, I know we, uh, Bruno's name pops up here again, but (laughs) yeah, he has a camp in Utah that a lot of us know about. And you know, we were talking before this interview, and you said you would like to see more camps like this. Can you explain how you feel about
0: it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I wasn't able to attend the camp last year, that last summer that Bruno had, and I really wanted to go. We have a new baby at home, so I wasn't able to do uh, that much this summer, as much as I wanted. Um, when I look back at my own experience and how I got off the ground with cross-country soaring, the key was the experience at Bishop, and you know being included by you know the guys at the pacific soaring council and i was a nobody and they they allowed me to come and you know i see sometimes that there are soaring safaris uh that people organize where you know it's all the same old guys and they're not open necessarily to you know they i can see the list of people flying and they should be including some younger pilots um so you know if you're doing a soaring safari Make sure you include some of the guys who you haven't been flying with for 30 years. So that's that's one suggestion. Uh, I think Bruno's camp, uh, the cross-country camp that he did, that's terrific. And I think more of those. I'm going to try to to be able to hit some of those in the coming summers. Uh, I think it sounds really fun way to explore different places. So, yeah, I just would think about how to reach out to the people who are on the edge of cross-country and including these folks. I think that that's a really key thing. I know you probably like for like Forrest Gump. That's all I got to say about that. (laughs) (laughs) Have you
1: set any uh, soaring goals for yourself in the coming months?
0: Yeah. So this this summer, my goal this summer is to uh, is to do a 750 K out and back. That's my that's that's my big goal. My first kind of diploma flight. Yeah, that's that's what I'm really trying to hit. I want to try to get to the Minden Wave Camp this spring. Hopefully that can work out, assuming our little Sophie is sleeping through the night by then, so yeah, so that. But, you know, just a bunch of cross-country experience. I, I've, been, I've been flying a lot of the same route on the Whites and the Inyos, and I'd like to be able to try to reach out uh, into Nevada a little bit, into uh, towards uh, Tonopah. So exploring a little bit more of the terrain. I always have this fantasy, and one of the one of the guys who was I was soaring with this summer had done this, and I want to try this as well. I don't know if I'll be able to do it this summer, is uh, one two two consecutive good days of soaring on the Sierras. One, you fly up to, to Minden from Inyokern and land and spend the night, and then the next day fly back. That is a good two days.
1: That sounds amazing.
0: Doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, so those are kind of my goals right now. I am, you know... The high altitude stuff I find really interesting, and uh, Blue Dorn in uh, the Sierra uh, uh, Soaring Club um, has set up a system in his glider to that's you know a redundant uh, system with an A14 that can reach he he's going to reach twenty or uh, sorry thirty five thousand feet with that, and it's really interesting to consider how to reach that kind of altitude safely. Longer term, I'd really like to to be able to try to do that in a in a in a safe uh, in a safe way. So yeah, it's fun to push the envelope.
1: Yeah, well, I'm I'm not pushing it too far yet. I'm still uh, <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm working on it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> got to get the get the winter out of the way here in the in the Appalachians, and then maybe I can get some soaring in soon.
0: Yeah, but that ridge soaring you guys have those those are some amazing flights. I see those on the OLC, just terrific.
1: Yeah, it's pretty awesome. It's nice to be up on the ridge, and it's it's just a lot of fun doing ridge soaring for sure. Yeah, totally. Keith, it's been great having you on the podcast, and you have some great ideas, and I hope some people you know, that hear this are going to run with it. We're building our listener base. We have quite a few listeners, and that's what we're trying to do on this podcast. We're trying to get the word of soaring out there, get some young people fired up, and, yeah. and keep this thing going and build it.
0: You know, my my students will tell you that you know I'll have a hundred ideas. Uh, Ninety of them are just certifiably bad, horrible. Ten of them are okay, and probably one of them is really good. So yeah, if any of these ideas are great, that we'd be pretty lucky.
1: I uh, think they're all great ideas, and I appreciate <laughs> you sharing them, Keith. I do thank you again for being on the podcast. It's been great to have you. Some some great ideas. And I know that some people will pick up and run with those.
0: Thanks, Chuck, so much for having me. I, I hope I haven't embarrassed myself with saying anything really silly. Uh, but you know, uh, those are those are some ideas and some thoughts that I've had. So uh, anyway, thanks again. I really appreciate it.
1: You are very welcome, Keith. And thank you for joining us today. Some great ideas for sure on how to grow the soaring community. An important event is coming up next month in Little Rock, Arkansas. That is the SSA Soaring Convention. There's going to be lots of great stuff going on. Some great speakers sharing their story, like Sarah Arnold, your current women's world champion, as well as Catherine Fossa and Sylvia Grandstaff, just to mention some of the people that will be there. The dates of the convention will be February 19th through the 22nd. And for more information, you can go to ssa.org on that. And for more info on how to get in touch with us here at Soaring the Sky and be a part of the Soaring community on social media, here's Michelle.
0: You can find us on social media. On Facebook, it's Soaring the Sky Podcast. On Instagram, it's
1: the same, Soaring the Sky Podcast. If you would like to say hi, just drop Chuck a line at chuck at soaringthesky.com. Or you can send us a note on the website soaringthesky.com Also, if you're a pilot we want to hear your story. Just send us an email and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next week for another great guest and adventure on Soaring the Sky.